0: Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Uh, Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the uh, 5.30, uh, the second go-around of a Center Church uh, service this weekend. Uh, My name is Justin Leach, and I'm one of the pastors here at Center Church. Um, I want to welcome you. If you are a new guest, a warm Center Church welcome. uh, Through your first time at Center Church, we're so glad that you're here. There's obviously a lot of unique uh, obstacles uh, to going to church in this season of pandemic, but we're glad that you've decided to worship with us. We've worked hard to try to make it as safe as possible um, with the different distance and the masks that you're all wearing so I can't see your beautiful faces. We're glad that you are here. Also online, we've got the live stream going. There are a handful of people in our church family who aren't able to come back safely yet just because of different situations they have uh, put them in an at-risk population. And uh, we're glad that we are able to offer the live stream to care for them uh, and to invite them to worship in that way in the season where it's not safe. But we look forward greatly to the day that we can come back to worship together. And the last group of people I have to welcome this morning is to welcome back the UVA students who have uh, taken over... uh, taking over Charlottesville over the past couple of days. Um, The traffic has gotten a lot thicker and uh, the lines at Bodo's are wrapping around street (laughs) corners uh, and onto highways. Uh, But we are glad that you're back. It brings a lot of energy and life to our church, uh, but also to our city. So we're glad that you're here worshiping with us uh, this evening. Today, uh, what we are going to do is to continue looking at the life of Abraham together. We've been spending a lot of weeks walking through Abraham's life and his story as it's recorded in Genesis, because the New Testament regularly goes back to him as the Old Testament example of what a life of faith, a life of trusting God, really looks like. So we've spent a lot of time looking at that. If this God, that Abraham worship, really exists, right it is really important how we relate to him. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, is a famous uh, author. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a professor of literature at Cambridge and Oxford, and uh, he was an atheist turned uh, Christian theologian. He said this about relating to God. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. Right? The way that we relate to God, if God is real, is incredibly important important. And what the Christian faith teaches, what the Bible gives us, is a God who is not just distant and vague and far off, but a God that is personal and who even invites us into relationship, even friendship with him. Now this friendship with God is a little bit unique, right? It's not going to be like a friendship with your frat bro or with your sorority sisters uh, because God is a very unique kind of friend. And this man, Abraham, that we've been studying over the past few weeks is actually described throughout Scripture three different times as a friend of God. One example of that is in James 2.23. This is what it says, And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Right? Abraham was a friend of God. we have been walking through his life, and we're going to see in this story today is the time that God shows up for a meal. So we're going to take a look at this friendship. But I think there are kind of two poles of how we can relate to God uh, in our context today. Two poles that I see one is we see Jesus as the CEO. All right, Jesus is my CEO. He's a little far off, high up, really powerful, a little bit scary. I have to do a, pre- a presentation. I'm gonna have my T's crossed, my I's dotted. I'm gonna come in there quiet, only spoke if spoken to, that kind of thing. All right, Jesus is my CEO. And this, um, I mean, bad rap right there, terrible painted picture. But there's a, exam- there's a way that's very good, right? We understand God's holiness, his righteousness, how different he is from us and how powerful he is. So there's elements of good in Jesus is my CEO. The other pole, the other end of this spectrum would be Jesus is my therapist. All right, Jesus is my therapist. In this sense, I'm, I'm going to you know, bring all my problems to Jesus. I'm going to come to him messy. I'm going to lay down on the couch while I'm talking to him and uh, share all of my problems. Not going to filter anything or think about anything deeply. Now, there's good aspects of this too, right? We have access to God in relationship through the message of the gospel, right? So we can come to him in our brokenness where we really are and, and, and have him fix and heal and grow us and meet and us there. But these are two poles that we uh, tend to fall into. So what we're going to do this morning is through looking at Abraham's story and to see encounter that he has over a meal with God, uh, we are going to see what friendship with God could look like. Abraham is called, again, multiple times throughout Scripture, a friend of God. And what we're going to see is how Abraham responds when God sho- shows up. It is an unusual friendship for sure. Right? because God is a very unusual friend, and we'll get to see some of those characteristics of this unusual friendship. So chapter 18, where we're going to be today, if you want to flip there now, chapter 18 closely follows uh, chapter 17, both in your Bible as well as in time. So before chapter 17, there had been about a 13-year silence from when God spoke to Abraham. And then coming into chapter 17, he goes to Abraham and he reaffirms his promise to Abraham to give him a place, some land, and a people, offspring and kings coming from him and nations coming uh, down his line. Um, Abraham was a little bit skeptical because he did not yet have a child Uh, that would be able to inherit this promise. Uh, And he's very old, 99 years old, and his wife is 90 years old. So initially, he responds with a little, little bit of skepticism in chapter 17, if you remember that from last week. But in the end, he trusts God, steps through faithfully into this covenant of circumcision, and expresses that he does trust the promise by his action of obedience. Right, so it's on the heels of this encounter with God in Genesis chapter 17 that just a couple weeks later, really closely, God shows up in Abraham's life again. So read with me in chapter 18, verse one and two. And the Lord appeared to Abram him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men ran from the tent door to meet them. Uh, When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. One man ran, not three men. Abraham ran from the tent and bowed before them. So what we see here is first, the Lord appeared to Abraham. All right, the word there, the Lord, uh, that we have in English can be translated the Lord from two different Hebrew words or two different biblical words that come to it. One is the word that we see right there in verse one, and the Lord. That word in the Hebrew is Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. They write backwards with different characters, but that's the general idea. And what that word is, the covenant name of God that God gave his people to relate to him personally. Think of it saying like God God giving us his first name. So that in a very relational basis, we can come to him and call him by his name. So he says, and the Lord came to Moses. The Lord appeared to him. And it's, it's, it's the Lord. It's God. We know that's who it is. There's another word, it's Adonai. Later in uh, verse three, when he says, oh Lord, that's the word that's true. You can tell because when it's Yahweh, it's all uppercase, but little in your Bible, if you're, if you're wondering. That's when they're using this personal name of God. The next one, the Lord is the word Adonai. And that can be used of a general human ruler, somebody they have to show respect to, or it can be used of God quite appropriately. So what we see as the audience, Moses' writing written by the Holy Spirit, this encounter that, that uh, Abraham has with God, we know that it is God. The God of the universe, the God of the cosmos has appeared to Abraham. He has showed up. And this is certainly unusual, right? But theophany is common throughout scripture. It happens pretty regularly. Theophany is simply this physical appearance of God. Sometimes it's fire on a mountain. Sometimes it's an audible voice. In a few chapters after Abraham's life, God comes and wrestles with someone. And what we see here is that the God of the universe, the omnipotent God who exists eternally as a spirit, he appears as a man. He shows up to see his friend Abraham in the heat of the day. So how does Abraham respond? How does Abraham respond? Well, immediately he runs and he bows. Abraham responds when God shows up by running to him and bowing. It's an unusual way to greet a friend, a very unusual way. I don't greet my friends that way, but it is an unusual friend. Right? He's greeting the God of the cosmos who is slow to anger, abounding in stes- and steadfast love and faithful to come through according to all of his promises. And that leads us to the first characteristic of what, it, uh, what a friendship with God looks like. A friend of God bows. All right? A friend of God bows. And this becomes even a bit more unusual when we realize who Abraham is. Abraham is an incredibly powerful man in his, com- in his community. He's a sheikh a head of an Arab family, a tribe, or a village, he has great authority. Just a few chapters before this, we saw him lead 318 warriors into battle and defeat kings, right? He has herds. He has servants. He has money, power. He has no peers in his community. Everyone looks up to him. He is the patriarch. He left his home. He started a new family. He started a new village and he is the supreme leader. He has no rivals. Everyone looks up to him. Everyone's submitted to him. And everyone respects him. But in the presence of Yahweh, in the presence of God, Abraham bows. Abraham bows. The sheikh who may be a somebody in his community is a nobody when God shows up. He's a nobody when God shows up. He expresses this in his bowing, right? Worship just reverence and adoration that God would be in his presence. Humility, a modest view of his own self-importance, willing to lay down on the ground in front of another. Submission, yielding to a completely superior force. When God shows up, he bows. Right In the same way, in the presence of Michael Jordan, the best hooper out at the AFC or over at Tonsler Park, bows. Right, The greatest singer at the karaoke bar, even Chris Kennedy, bows. When Whitney Houston shows up, (laughs) right? When Picasso is in the room, the local cartoon artist that everybody loves their pictures bows in their presence. And when God shows up, even Abraham bows. When God shows up, everyone bows. When God shows up, we bow. A friend of God bows. And this is one reason why commitment and regularity of attendance to gathering as a church family on Sunday mornings is so vitally important. Because this is one way that God instituted for his people, for his church, to gather together and to bow before him. Right? We bow to God by putting this as an anchor in our rock, in our schedule, showing that he has priority over the busyness and the different schedules that we are managing. We bow by sitting under God's word and his teaching as we hear it preached and read throughout the services, we bow by singing songs of praise and lifting our hands to him who saved us from our sin. Right? We bow to God by prioritizing this time in our services. And over the past few months, we've gotten to see what, uh, what happens when we don't have that time. We're lonely, we're discouraged, we forget the goodness of God and we don't have this time to come together to hear the word preached. We get to supplement it with uh, videos online and worshiping in homes, but it is not the same as gathering with God's people and being encouraged, bowing before him together. Now, there are a number of people in our church family who can't come back yet, and I know they long to be here with us, uh, but it is an incredible privilege that we get to come together and bow before God together each and every Sunday. So I would just ask you, do you bow before God? Even in this this one area of life, of the priority of gathering with God's people to worship him weekly, do you bow? Are you standing, approaching him? Are you coming before him, bowing, putting his preferences, worshiping him in humility, in submission before him? A friend of God bows. Let's move on in the story. This is Genesis uh, 18, uh, verse 3. Verses 3 through 5 say, uh, And Abraham said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. All right, so Abraham just invites them to stay. They show up out of nowhere spontaneously in the middle of the day. He drops his siesta, and he gets uh, to uh, welcoming them into his home. So continue on with me in verses 6 through 8, and look what Abraham went and did. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, "'Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes.' And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly." Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. This leads us to the second unusual way that a friend of God relates to God. That is a friend of God serves. All right, a friend of God serves. Now I do eat meals with my friends and even I could probably do something that is called serving them a meal, but I don't serve them like this right? Abraham runs, drops everything he's doing, makes them a meal, gives it to him, and then stands off to the side at attention to serve them as they are eating. I don't do that with my friends. Maybe I should, but this is an unusual friendship. The second characteristic of this friendship is that a friend of God serves. In the presence of God, the powerful Abraham becomes the servant, right? The man who everyone served him, he had reached the peak and had everyone uh, doing his bidding, he becomes the servant of, to God. And he ju- does not just do this begrudgingly and half-heartedly, but joyfully and full of generosity. Right? Just look at the words described here. It's quickly, quick, ran tender and good calf, curds and milk, and all of the rich blessings for this guest who showed up. Right? He does it with a heart full of joy. And I think if God showed up on any of our doors, whether you know it's the dorm room, the, the house, Um, or just uh, maybe at your workplace, comes around the corner and says, hey, could I have a meal? Or God comes around the corner and says, hey, could you get me a meal? I think all of us probably do something similar to this, right? If we're following Jesus for a long time, we have a deep respect for the God of the Bible, we probably do this. And even if we are not interested in following Jesus and God shows up, we we probably still serve him a meal. Uh, Just the different ways the Bible describes him and holy and fire and all this stuff. We're going to just do what he says. All right, but the Bible doesn't let us off this easily, right? Because we could say here, oh yeah, I serve God. If he shows up at my door, of course I'll make him a meal. It's God. But Jesus doesn't let us get off this easily. Matthew 25, this is what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. All right, the way that you serve God now is not by making him lunch when he shows up, but it's by loving his people and advancing his kingdom. All right, the way that we serve God is not making him lunch now when he shows up, although if he does, do that. But it is by loving his people and advancing his kingdom. Today, it might not look, look like making lunch, but it might look like being a part of a center church serving team. Right, I'll just give a shout out to our worship and production teams. Every other week, they're here for about six hours, getting stuff set up, doing band practice, so that we can worship together. I mean, they sacrifice. I think they're a great picture of sacrifice and serving in the church, so that we can worship God together. We have a number of different serving teams that we'd love for you to get plugged into, so that you can serve God and be a part of what's going on. Another way is that you could be generous. Sort of brother or sister in Christ. We have a number of families who welcome young pros or married couples into their homes to live in an extra bedroom or a basement just to bless them and encourage them uh, and disciple them as they're uh, going on in life. Then Another way that you can serve God is by living on mission through word and deed, right? Through deed, um, keep uh, you know, gift cards or hygiene kits in your car because there are people in need that are at different corners that you stop at throughout the city. Uh, and be ready to love, and to serve them, and to bless them. Also, in word, be ready to pray for people, and to proclaim the message of the hope of the gospel, that we have ultimate hope, because Jesus took care of our greatest problem, which was sin. Live on mission through word and deed. We don't serve God now by making him lunch, but by loving his people, and advancing his kingdom. But here in service, it is incredibly important that we remember the object of our service, right? When we serve others what was very clear for Abraham can come, sometimes get clouded for us. When we serve others, we are first serving God. And when we twist motives, even for other really good motives, we'll burn out, and what we will do, won't, we won't be able to sustain service over a long period of time. If you do, if you join a serving team to build community, right, you'll make friends, you get busy, and give that up, you have your friends. Um, if you Uh, Serve because it's what you're supposed to do to fit in at Center Church, right? Eventually, you'll get cynical and skeptical and and burn out because of that. If you serve uh, just for the sake, even just for the sake of the good of others, when they don't respond with the thankfulness and the gratitude that you desire, you're going to be frustrated and irritated. But when you know that you are serving God first when you're serving others, then no matter how they respond or what you are doing, you'll be able to continue and service. right? Abraham served God directly by giving him a meal, but we serve God by advancing his kingdom and loving his people. Don't forget you're serving God when you're doing those things. People are never going to be worthy of it, but God is most definitely worthy of it. It's first and foremost service to God. So that's the second mark of this unusual friendship with God, a friend of God serves. And at this point in the story, as we head into verse 9, God is going to turn his attention from Abram, Abraham, and turn it to his wife, Sarah. So read uh, read with me in verse 9. This is what it says. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. All right, this comment, although God is still speaking to Abraham, it's for Sarah, right? Just a chapter before, God made this exact same promise to Abraham. He, he knows it. Also, we see that Sarah was listening. So God is now talking at Abraham, but to Sarah. Um, and we'll continue down in uh, verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. We've been reminded of that chapter by chapter throughout the story. Um, and um, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself after she heard God's promise. She laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Right? Sarah hears this promise that in one year, God will return and she'll have a child. And she laughs. And she says, yeah, Right? My whole life, I haven't been able to have kids. I'm well past my childbearing years. There is no way that I'm going to have a child. She, she laughs. But we do need to pause and just take a look a second. Why is she responding in this way? I mean, just think about it. Month after month for Sarah, year after year, she has been begging God for a child with no success. Maybe there were times that she thought she was pregnant, only to realize later that she wasn't, just a couple days later. Friends and family had children, and this was a joy in life that she was simply just going to have to miss out on and not get to partake in. Uh, She had the disappointment of missing out on that. She had shame and embarrassment at the whispers and the pity of others. She had anger towards God, likely. Don't you care about me, God? I've been asking for this one thing for so long. She was so desperate that we saw just one point a few chapters earlier that she had a servant sleep with her husband so that she could adopt the baby as her own. She hears this promise from God that I'm going to come back in a year and you're going to have a child, and she laughs. She doubts. She's skeptical. She questions. She refuses to get her hopes up. But how does God respond? Pick up with me in verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed uh, bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but she did laugh. Sarah heard God's promise and didn't trust, but she doubted. By a negative example here with Sarah, we see this third characteristic, this unusual characteristic of friendship with God, and that is a friend of God trusts. A friend of God trusts. A quick aside here, Sarah is not rebuked for her sorrow She's not rebuked for her pain or over the difficulty um, that she has walked through because she can't have a baby. Um, This is is an area where many people in our church and in our community have great hardship and sorrow and sadness uh, because of difficulty of burying children. But Sarah is not rebuked for that uh, difficulty. This story is not a rebuke of sadness. uh, When we go through trauma of many really difficult things, And we hope and pray that Center Church can be a safe place for you to process through that get involved with community build deep meaningful relationships where you can heal by the grace of Jesus and with his people through whatever you have walked through or are walking through. So Sarah is not rebuked for the difficulty that she has walked through, but she is rebuked for not trusting God's promise. Right when God promises, we trust. All right, none of us, at least as far as I know, are promised to have a baby or to have a husband, or a high-paying job, a new car, whatever it is. We're not promised that, um, but we do have many promises in Scripture that we laugh at, that I think we're tempted to laugh at. Here are just a couple, right? Psalm 1611, it is a promise to you that pleasure and joy are found in God's presence, right? But so often, I think we laugh at that, right? We chase other things. We laugh at God and say, yeah, right. I've seen what going to church is like, and that's not pleasure and joy there, right? We laugh at it, but God says, no, trust me. In my presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Maybe you struggle deeply with uh, same-sex attraction, or maybe you are uh, single and you don't have hopes of getting married, and you're saying, God, I think I could go outside of your will and your design for my life, and there I'll find pleasure and joy. What I would urge you to say, I would say to you is don't laugh at God's promise, following him, obeying him, and trusting him in some way and somehow is going to lead to pleasure and joy. Trust his promise. Even if, like Sarah, you find it unbelievable in the moment, trust his promise. 1 John 1, nine is another promise. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you laugh at that promise? Is there something from your past or struggle that you currently have that you feel like is too, too tough for God to handle? Maybe you don't want to go to him. You're like, yeah, you you saved me, God, but I can't enjoy you. I can't have intimacy with you uh, because I have this sin that's all wrapped up. God promises. You confess your sin, forgiven, cleansed. You're his, you're safe. Don't laugh at that promise. Another promise, 1 John 5, 5. As we pray, he uh, hears our prayer and gives them to us. Have you been laughing at this promise of answered prayer by walking in self-control and prayerlessness? Do you laugh at this promise? Revelation 21 is a promise from God that one day he will wipe away every tear from every eye, from your eye, and he will restore all things and make every wrong thing right. Do you laugh at that promise? Do you look at the broken world around us and doubt that God can bring goodness and perfection and hope out of it? Do you laugh at these promises? All right, Sarah seems to have good logical reasons to doubt God's promise, but she's rebuked because when God promises we trust. A friend of God trusts God. This doesn't mean, though, that we can't bring our questions and our difficulties to God, but it does mean that Sarah brought those questions and difficulties to God incorrectly, right? As we trust God, we should bring him questions like a child and not like a skeptic. A friend brings questions to God as a child of God rather than a skeptic of God, right? A skeptic is going to come to God, is going to poke holes, laugh, diminish, and justify themselves. But a child of God comes to God from a place of trust, seeking to understand what God is doing and how things are working, but from a foundation of trust. The fruit of Sarah's unbelief was that she overflowed in this skepticism and laughter and operated more like a skeptic of God than a child of God. She did not come to him from a place of humility, seeking to understand, but scoffing. When we don't trust God, skepticism will be the fruit that overflows in our life. Laughing at his promises will be the fruit in our life. Skepticism and laughter, they are a rotten fruit of Sarah's lack of trust. But what then, if that is the the, the fruit that's coming out, what is the rotted root that's leading to it? Well, she thought that there was something that was too hard for the Lord. She thought that there was something that was too hard for the Lord, right? God gives her that rhetorical question as a stinging rebuke, Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the obvious answer is no. She thought this miracle baby was too hard for the Lord and it was not. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? No, God is sovereign. God is omnipotent and has the authority and the ability to do anything He pleases at any time He wishes. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Not Sarah's miracle baby, not bringing you joy in the midst of whatever unmet desires you're walking through, uh, not uh, answering prayer that's not too hard for the Lord, not saving the most wretched of sinners by grace through faith, not turning us broken people into salt and light in the world and filling us up with the fruit of the Spirit as he changed us, not restoring all things on that last day so that we can have our tears wiped away and see that all things are made right and good. Again, nothing is too hard for the Lord. When we miss out on that root, when we don't believe that there is nothing too hard from the Lord, the fruit will be skepticism and laughing at God's promises. Do you trust his promises? Do you trust Psalm 1611, that in his presence there's pleasure and joy, his promises for answered prayers, promises for salvation? Do you trust those? If you find it hard to trust God, what is better than going to each of the fruits is to go and to deal with the root. Go straight to the heart of it and go to the root of the relationship, the unusual friendship with him. And here's the foundational question that you need to answer. Do you trust him? right? Do you trust God? Today, many of you may be able to say, yes, I trust God and praise, praise God for that. But I think these next two categories will fill many more of us in there. I know some of us in here will say, I believe and trust, but sometimes I really struggle. Sometimes I see the promise and I just go somewhere else rather than allowing God to come through for me, right? I think of the character in the gospels that comes to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief, Right? I think many of us are in that place. I know some of us in here are probably at a place, no, I just, I don't trust God. And not yet at least. Or maybe at one time I did trust him, but he failed. These circumstances in my life have been hard and I don't trust him. So what do we do? when We want to trust more when we don't trust now. This is what I want to point you to. We look at Christ. All right, we look at Christ and there we see God's trustworthiness. We see God's holiness, his love, and his sovereignty packaged together in perfection in a way that we can look to him and worship and trust. Then we can trust as the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our heart to see God clearly and be convinced that he will come through to us. The way that we do that is look at Christ. We look at Christ. We need God's holiness because without it, he'd be corrupt. We can't trust him. God needs, we need his love. Without it, he uses us for his selfish gain. We need to see God's sovereignty. Without it, even if he wanted to help, he couldn't. And at the cross, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see with high definition the trustworthiness of God. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we see with high definition the trustworthiness of God. And that is why we have to go there to look. We see God's holiness, We see God's holiness in high definition, right? God could not wink at sin. He couldn't overlook it. He is so completely, utterly, and holy. He proves it at the cross because to satisfy his holiness, which is good news for us, he was willing even to send his own son. Jesus, to accomplish sin debt being forgiven and no winking needing to happen, Jesus went to the cross so that the debts could be settled. God's holiness, we see it at the cross, God's love. Right? Although all of us are apart from God, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve eternity apart from him because of our rebellion, because of his holiness. God's love said, I don't want it to stay that way. So what I'm going to do in love, God says, is I'm going to send my only son to pay the penalty for sin that these people deserve. They sinned against me, rebelled against me, but I don't want to leave them in that place. In love, I am going to pay a great price to win them back. Jesus, in love for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, took on the pain of taking the penalty of our sin on his own shoulders out of love for us, holiness and love, and lastly, sovereignty. God raised Jesus from the dead, defeating once and for all the power of sin and of death. So now that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and is refining you and is rooting sin and nastiness out of you. You are a beloved child, and God's doing a great and wonderful work in you, and that power of sin and death he defeated, that power he put in you as a child of God. He is holy, he is love, he is sovereign at the cross of Jesus Christ. We see with high definition that Jesus is trustworthy. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Praise God if it's yesterday. If it's hard, look at Christ. If it's yes, still look at Christ. And if you don't trust him yet, look to Jesus Christ who took the cross for you. When we see the cross of Jesus Christ, when we see that God defeated power of sin and death, we can trust him. We can trust him. No matter who you are, no matter where you have been, no matter what you have done, you can be a friend of God through Christ. It is an unusual friendship for sure but it's an unusual and gracious and loving and sovereign friend. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you made a way for us when we were your enemies. While we were far from you, you came to us and you rescued us. I pray that as we are leaving church today, we would be renewed with trust in you, and in that, we would find energy and joy to bow to you, to serve you, and to make a difference for the sake of your name in our community. God, we thank you that although we were enemies, you made a way for us to be called friends through Christ. God, we cannot say this enough. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name I pray.